0: And so, with that said, turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 1 to 4 this morning. We're starting a new book. We we're two years in the Gospel of Matthew, and now we're going to be covering, I don't know how long it'll take, but First and Second Thessalonians, and we're going to go through it verse by verse. I titled this morning's message, The Model Church. And when I think of the church, I don't think of a church building. We have a church building here that we meet in. It keeps the rain off of our heads. It gives us a a place to come to. But the church is not 402 Polo Road. The church is the people that are sitting here this morning. This local body makes up Calvary Chapel Fellowship. You're the church. That's the way God sees it, not a building. He sees people. He sees hearts. And so we're going to look at a model church, the church at Thessalonica, a church really as a church body today that we should look at and say, I would like to be like that they're a great example for us to be able to follow after. We know that the Apostle Paul, that he had three missionary journeys, really four, but three that we find recorded in the book of Acts in Scripture. And we see all the various letters that he went on his way and went about these missionary journeys that he wrote letters back to these various churches and to individual people. Well, it was on Paul's second missionary journey, uh, a missions trip that lasted somewhere between 18 months to three years. You see, the Apostle Paul was a church planter, and he went into new areas and new places, and he planted churches. And he's the, really the best church planter that history records. But we can read about Paul's missionary journey here and coming into this brand new city called Thessalonica and an area that Paul had never journeyed into before. We read about it. If you want to turn first in your Bibles to the book of Acts, I told you Thessalonians, but turn to uh, the book of Acts in chapter 15 and you can follow along with a few highlights that I want to give you leading up. To the point at which Paul enters into this city called Thessalonica. In chapter 15, it begins with Paul and his companion Silas leaving from his home church in the area called Antioch. Paul had a home church himself. Every time he went on a missions trip, He would return to his home church and declare to them all the wonderful things that God had done. No internet. There was no way of texting and saying what's going on out here. They had to wait anywhere from a year in his first journey up to five years on his last journey before they would get a report of what what did God do? And Paul would come back into his home church and declare to them, this is what God did. We know that Paul and Silas were the ones that left on this mission uh, together. And, And what they always did is on the first journey, he went and planted some churches. And on the second journey, he would follow up with those first plants and then plant some more. And on the third journey, he would follow up with those and then he would plant some more. And it expanded really over the whole known world, the Roman Empire at the time. Churches being planted. In verse 40 of chapter 15, Paul chooses a co-worker called Silas to accompany him on this journey. In verse 41, and I think we might have a little map that Rick might be able to put up there. In verse 41, we see them traveling by land through the area of Syria and Cilicia, and they went through these areas, we're told, strengthening the churches and then they came to a city called Derby, And then from there they came to a city called Lystra. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, Timothy at this point now joins Paul and Silas there in Lystra. He joins the team. He's going to go now and travel on with them from this point. In verses 8 to 10, they all continue on their journey and they come to the city of Troas, where it's at that point that God gives the Apostle Paul a vision in the night. This vision in the night was a man of Macedonia, another region across the water, that stood there pleading with him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's a work of God. It's what I shared at the missions conference yesterday. The book of Acts is a book of movement. It's the Holy Spirit through the apostles working and going forward, planting churches, and God doing incredible things by his Holy Spirit. Here is Paul getting this vision from the Lord of this man saying, Come to Macedonia. And help us. Why? Because God loves the people of Macedonia. God loves the people that surround this church here. God loves the people of Winston-Salem and Kernersville and whatever area you have come from. He loves those people. And he wants to send us out of this place each and every week back to our cities, back to our places to touch people's lives. That's a work of God's Holy Spirit in our life. We know that in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 16 that they leave Troas they get into a boat and they sail to Neapolis and from there they end up in the city of Philippi that must have been how just think how incredibly exciting that was to go by foot to go by boat to go by horse to make their way into a new city a new region And they were just plowing the ground. And they were just sold out to the Lord, whatever it cost. That was the hearts that had been changed by our Lord. That's our hearts. When they come into this city there of Philippi, they meet a woman, Lydia, at the riverside. And and she gets saved. Her whole household gets saved. A a slave girl in verse 16 to 18 is delivered from an evil spirit. In verses 19 to 34, Paul and Silas, they're arrested. You see, there was persecution that came along with them being able to put put the gospel out there, being unashamed of the gospel. There was persecution that came along. Here's Paul and Silas now being arrested and thrown into a prison. And what do they do? The joy of the Lord is just overwhelming their hearts. They're overwhelmed with their relationship with Jesus Christ and they begin to sing out. They know that God allowed them to be put in prison. There's a purpose in us being here. There's a purpose that you go through the trials and the difficulties you go through in life. God has a reason Why he allows you to go down those hard roads. Here's Paul and say, it wasn't an easy road for them. But here they are after they've been beaten and sitting in this dungeon, this pit, singing and praising God. Out of the darkness, all of the, the Roman guards and all of the other prisoners hear them singing and praising God with their mouth. What a witness What a testimony. What a testimony does that somebody in the midst of that and all of that could still have the joy of the Lord. Wow. And then God brings about a supernatural earthquake, knocks down the walls to the prison, and here it is, this Philippian jailer gets saved. Why? God loves that one man, that one jailer. He loves him. And sends Paul and Silas into the prison so that he would get saved and then his household would get saved. Isn't that incredible? How God will do that for one person. God will use you to even do something that will cause that person to turn their eyes to the Lord. Sometimes it comes through tragedy even in our own lives. That we see people turn to Christ. Because God cares about souls. He cares about people after being brought before the magistrates of that city, we're told that they decided to let Paul and Silas go. They let him go and, and they went back to Lydia's house and they encouraged her and then they departed from that city. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15, is where we pick up this section. Now leading into this letter to the Thessalonians... And we see Paul and his co-workers now traveling a hundred miles by land. They're on a trade route that is called the Ignatian Way. This Ignatian Way was, it, it led right to the capital city of Thessalonica. It was a trade route that people traveled. You see, there was something very strategic with the Apostle Paul, not only with Paul, but the Holy Spirit leading them as they went. This Ignatio way was a traveled road by many people. And Paul knew that. He knew that these roads led into the city. It would be a strategically a perfect place to have a church planted. And so they come into this port city of Thessalonica. One of the largest and one of the wealthiest trade centers in the Roman Empire in the day. It had a population in Paul's day of around 200,000 people. Today, it's modern-day Salonica. It still has a population of 400,000 people there today. This city was founded around 350 BC by the king Cassander of Macedon. He named it after his wife, Salonica, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And so Thessalonica, it became this, this Roman Republic, this Roman city uh, that were, made up one of the districts of Macedonia. Macedonia is like a county. It's like a big region or an area. You see it there. And its population in this city was known to have been primarily and mainly Greek. There were Jews that were in this city. There was a synagogue, and wherever there were Jews, there would be a synagogue. But there were a lot of Greeks within the city. And then we're told that Paul came into this city with his companions, and like he always did, he came into uh, the synagogue. That was his forum. That was his place to sit there and to share the gospel and to share the word of God. And that's what we read in, in Acts chapter 17, in verses uh, 1 to 15, we read how Paul entered this city. Look at your Bibles, Acts 17:1. Now when he had passed through Am- Amphipolis and Am- uh, Apollyon, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He explained and he demonstrated that Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you, he is the Christ, he is the anointed one, he is the one that we've been waiting for. And he used and he had all the the Old Testament scriptures to back up what he was saying. He reasoned with them. He shared with them. He is the one we've been waiting for. And he began to preach the gospel to them. We're told that in verse 4 that some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, not not a few of the leading women, they joined Paul and Silas. They were getting saved. They were hearing. They were believing. They were turning. They were coming to that understanding that Jesus Christ was their coming Messiah. But the Jews, we're told in verse 5, who were not persuaded, became envious. And they took some of the evil men from the marketplace. And they gathered a mob. And they set all the city in an uproar. And attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. That's what it will happen if you make a stand for Jesus Christ. You want to try it sometime? Do it with a neighbor. Do it at work. Do it at school. Say something about Jesus Christ. You can say a lot about God, and people won't get too riled. You start talking about Jesus Christ and the relationship you have with Him, and they see the joy of the Lord in you, you better believe it It will stir some people up. It's what was happening here in Thessalonica. Paul, it wasn't brand new to him. He knew it would come. He was willing to count the cost of what it meant to suffer for Christ, and he counted himself privileged to be able to suffer for the Lord. But it says that when, verse 6, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brothers, brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They heard. These men were causing a stir. Incredible. That's what God wants to do in you. He wants to use you and use your unashamed faith to speak to people about him. And, and we say we have to say, Lord, give me boldness from you, boldness from above, that I wouldn't be ashamed to open my mouth and see what God won't do. It says that Jason has harbored them, and they're, these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They were trying to stir the people up against him. Trying to get them to attack them, give them a reason to even kill them. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they had heard these things. And so, when they had security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Here they are now being ran out of town. That'd be like you coming here into Winston-Salem or whatever city you live in, and you've caused such a stir in your surrounding that people are really wanting you out of town. Could you imagine that? We would like you to move out of Winston. We'd like you to get out of here because you know what? You're stirring people up, and we don't like it. Wow. Do you count that a privilege? It says, Then the brethren immediately... These are the brothers that got saved there in Thessalonica. They sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And, they, uh, and when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. They just went to the next city, ran out of town. They took the advice of the brethren, Paul and Silas, Timothy, you, you, you need to get out of, you need to get out. Of, your life's in danger. You need to move on. And they did, and they moved on, and they came down to the area there of Berea. And then it says, when they arrived there, that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. A whole new encounter, a whole new city, another synagogue, more people, and that's what Paul and Silas and Timothy did, just from one area to the next. We know, if you want to turn now to Thessalonians, we're only going to cover the first four verses. We know that the Apostle Paul was the author of these letters. He had his co laborers with him, Silas and Timothy. They were his companions, travel companions. Uh, But Paul was the writer of this letter. Uh, Timothy that traveled along with uh, the Apostle Paul, he was uh, not only a co-laborer, but we read in Philippians 2.20, Paul said this about this young man, and he was a young man, that I have no one as like-minded as Timothy. You know, those kind of men and even those kind of women within ministry are very important, like-mindedness. We're on the same page. We know why we're here. We know where we're going. We know what this is all about. We work together in unison because we're on the same page. We have the same goal. That's how Paul viewed Timothy. I could send Timothy to you, and what he would say to you would be like he was representing me. And that's the confidence and the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with Timothy. We know that this particular letter of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians was probably one of the earliest letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, possibly next to Galatians. Galatians may have been the very first letter that the Apostle Paul penned. Paul, now in uh, chapter 3... Uh, He began to, and we're not going to get too far ahead in this, but I just want to explain to you what was going on when Paul and Silas and Timothy were ran out of town, ended up in Berea. Paul, at that point, then sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. Why? Because he was concerned for these brand new believers. So here's Paul going south with his men. He's in Berea. And then he sends Timothy, he says, I want you to go back to Thessalonica and I want you to go see how the brethren are doing. There's great persecution in that city. Not only was it against us, but it's against those brand new believers in Christ. Go back and check on them. He speaks of this in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left In Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brethren and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions. That was the afflictions that they were under. For you yourselves know that we are appointed for this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. You see, that's a good thing to tell a brand new Christian. You give your life to Christ, it won't be an easy road. You don't want to tell somebody that gives their life that now everything's going to be all roads, everything's good. No trials anymore. You're going to have money in the bank. It's all going to be good. You don't want to tell people that. You know that from experience. It's not easy. At times, if you live for Christ, to follow after him. He told them that. It was part of discipleship. You will suffer tribulation. You saw it happen to us. It is happening to you also. And for this reason, when I could no longer endure it. In other words, he was inside. He was aching to hear how they were doing. He couldn't just call him up on the phone. He couldn't send a text off to him. I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. He was concerned for their walk, concerned for their discipleship, concerned for how well they were doing in their walks. Just as we should be if we see somebody come to Christ. How well are you doing? How's your walk? How are you growing? And we seek to disciple people when we lead them to Christ. But now that Timothy has come back, So here's Paul now in the city of Corinth. He leaves that area of Athens there. He goes to Corinth on his own. He comes into that city on his own. And then Timothy comes down to him with the report of how the believers are doing there in Thessalonica. And when he arrives, it says, and now that Timothy has come to us, he's come back now from you. And he has brought us good news of your faith and love. And that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. You see this love relationship that was built in a short amount of time with these believers? These believers, they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God, we read at the end of chapter 1. And this was a real deal. These were people that were caught up into idolatry. There were Greeks and Jews. They were caught up into all these things. And the evidence of the Apostle Paul was that you have turned from your idols to serve the living and true God. You see, when somebody gives their life to Christ, and all of a sudden their life is completely changed, it's completely different, that's a good indicator this was a, a real conversion. Somebody gave, they, they put off the ways of their past. And they now they're following and serving after Christ that's what Paul was rejoicing in. He hears this report back and he wants to encourage them and so he sits down and he begins to pen a letter out to the believers there at Thessalonica. He wants to encourage them and build them up in their faith. He expresses his thankfulness to God for their salvation and the good example that they were being to the Churches there in Macedonia. This is a brand new church. These are brand new believers. And they're being a good example to the other churches. Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem. I would want nothing more than for this church to stand out, to be a marker. There would, would be, that people would see it They would see the works that are going on out of this church, not to our glory, but to his glory. And they would see something about this church that they would say, I want that. I want to be there. I want to be a part of that. I see a great example in these believers. It's something I can't deny. It's not church. It's relationship. It's people living out their faith. That's the example that these believers were being there at Thessalonica they were a good example in verse chapter 1 verse 2 it says we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers thankful Paul's just the first thing he could write as he's writing this letter I'm just so thankful I'm hearing this good report from Timothy in chapter 2 verse 1 we'll read and we'll get into this that Paul had to defend his motives He had to defend his motives to them of of his preaching of the gospel to them. Why? Because there were people that were in this persecution saying, these guys are just there for the money. They came into your city, they're trying to fleece you. They're all about, you know, it's not about you, it's about them. See, they're gone. They took off. They ran. And Paul had to defend his motives. He also wanted to comfort them in chapter 3, verse 3, that... No one should be shaken by these afflictions, he wrote to them, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. He also exhorted them to live holy lives in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and how you ought to please God. That was Paul writing to them, exhorting them to holiness, exhorting them to a walk that would be pleasing to the Lord. It was part of discipleship. It was part of their growth. They needed to grow. We need to grow. We need to move on and get ahead. We need to be able to look at our lives and say, I'm I'm different than I was a year ago, even six months ago, that I'm a different person. I'm growing. I'm maturing. He also told them in chapter 4, verse 16, he spoke to them about the rapture. First and second, Thessalonians speaks more about the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church than any other New Testament book. He says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he says to the believers there, therefore comfort one another with these words. Remind each other that Christ is coming back. Why? It'll be a comfort to your heart. As you're going through your trials and tribulations of life, as you're being suffering and suffering for persecution for your faith, And he also answered the question about his second coming, not to be confused with the rapture of the church. In chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, and it will be, even at his second coming. So let's start reading in verse 1 this morning in our text. Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, Your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And then he says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. That's just his opening words. That's his that's his thankfulness of heart. This wasn't just a a fancy way to start a letter. Uh, this is what was coming forth out of his heart, and the whole, obviously the Holy Spirit directing, as he wrote this letter to them, He says to the church at uh, of the Thessalonians, the church. This is the church. This is one church in Winston-Salem, not the church. This is one church. There are other fellowships of believers. It's the Greek word ecclesia. It's it's the ones that are called out. And you know what I want to say? There's no perfect churches. Have you ever noticed that? As a matter of fact, if you're looking for a perfect church, and as soon as you walk into it, it'll become imperfect. As soon as you come through the doors, now it's imperfect. Why? Why? Because we're all imperfect people. Every single one of us. We have failures. We don't do it perfect. We don't always do it right. And it's okay for me to say that. Why? Because you're in a body of flesh that won't always do it perfectly. You won't always minister to one another exactly like you should. But God, forgive me when I don't. And help me to do better at it. And help me to minister to one another. I pray that this church, Calvary Chapel Fellowship, is going to be a healthy body. One that are growing together in unity and love. And that there's something in this place that we could all say this is a work of God, not a work of our hands. So don't look. Don't be on a pursuit of a perfect church. Find a place that is teaching the Word of God. Find a place where believers are in love with Jesus Christ and loving one another and willing to give of themselves and you're going to find a good place to be. When Paul writes to the church, he's not writing to a building, is he? He's writing to people. You see, we have this building that the Lord has given us here literally we got new windows put in it we got new carpet here we got new pews uh covered but that is not the thing that God is most concerned with he's most concerned with those people that are sitting inside of it these things are just things and it's nice but it's about you it's about me He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the order. Look at your Bibles. Notice the order there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, undeserved favor. Peace, which is a result of receiving that grace. It's why it's in that order. First, you receive God's grace. And it's every day that you do. And when you receive God's grace, when you live in that grace, when you operate in that grace, there's peace. And when you don't, there's wrestling. "Mm, I'm unhappy. No, there's peace. The peace of God will overwhelm your heart. You'll experience his grace day in and day out. His mercies are new every day. He says, We give thanks to God always for you all. I don't know what it was about Paul, man. This man, not only did he tell us and exhort us to pray continually, but he did it. He didn't just tell people to do it, he did it himself. We give thanks to God always for you all. And what about the the church at Philippi? And what about the church at Antioch? What about the church here? At Derby. What about all these other churches? I'm praying for them too. I'm praying for all of you. How would you like to be overwhelmed with that? I get overwhelmed with just trying to pray for you. And let alone all the other churches. I do pray for the church back in Wales because my heart's connected there. But Paul was a church planner. He's praying for not only the brother that are traveling, but the churches. Prayer was part of their daily walk. It needs to be a part of our walk every single day. If, it's, if this is convicting words to you, that's good. It's convicting words to me. We need to pray more as a church. We need to be more involved in prayer groups with one another. There's an advantage to pray through your prayer closet. But there is an advantage to corporate prayer, getting together with one another and praying and lifting one another up. And we need to see that more in 2017. If you feel led to start a prayer group here on any day of the week, any time, I will give you the alarm code and a key. And you can come here and open this building up and start a prayer meeting. I'm open to whenever we would pray here corporately as a church. And so look for ways Ask the Lord to put it upon your heart. Is he calling you to do that? And take it seriously that this church is not going to be healthy, nor will it grow, unless we bathe everything that we do in prayer. We need to pray more. One of the ways I know that I'm called by a pastor to this church is because... Y'all are in my prayers all the time. Did I say that right? Y'all. Y'all are in my prayers all the time. Kathy and myself, we do pray for you often. By name. It'll get harder as we get more people. But we'll do it. We pray for you. That's how I know I'm called to this church. Because God has given me a burden to pray for you. It's a good indicator for me. So I don't get discouraged and run off. Paul, and not just Paul, but his companions here are thanking God for them. When's the last time that you thanked God for something in your own personal prayer life? That you actually thanked him for something in your life? Even when you're going through difficult times. Do you know that thankfulness is characteristic of an unbeliever? According to Apostle Paul in Romans. It says, uh, speaking of all the the things, the character traits of an unbeliever, and then it says, and neither were they thankful. It's characteristic of a non-believer, unthankfulness. But for a believer, it's thankfulness in all things, that we have something we can be thankful for, no matter how bad things are. Did you know that having a thankful heart is the remedy for your trials. Have you ever done that? When you're in the thick of it and you find yourself thanking the Lord, even when you're in the middle of it, and you begin praising him and thanking him in prayer, and all of a sudden it seems like that gets a little bit less difficult to endure. Thankfulness. It's a remedy for your trials. It'll help. It won't necessarily end the trial, but it'll help you in the midst of it. We can find three other times in this letter where Paul is thanking God and also exhorting them to give thanks. We read in chapter 2, verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, Because when you received the word of God, when you heard it from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectually works in you who believe. I can relate to that. Here he is thanking God and the God above that they were receiving the words that he spoke to them when he was with them, not as words of men but words from God. I can relate to that, and I hope that when you hear me teach, that you're hearing the voice of God. God speak to my heart. You see, that's what God does through teaching and through his word and by his Holy Spirit. He speaks to our hearts during those moments. In chapter 3, verse 9, Paul had something else to be thankful for. He says, For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. For what thanks can we render to God for you? Wow. Wow. Night and day, praying exceedingly. That's serious business that Paul has taken it upon himself. He realizes the battle that is raging out there. And I'm praying for you exceedingly. Because I know it's accomplishing something. I know you're growing in your faith. Even through our prayers, God is doing a work in you. Remember the New Year's resolution that I ended the message with last week? It was out of this book. In chapter 5, verse 17, Paul closes out this letter by saying, Pray without ceasing. Remember I said this would be a good New Year's resolution? In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thanksgiving. Being thankful to our Lord. By the way, if you missed... Last Sunday's message. All of the messages that we have here get recorded. They're on our website. Why would I want you to listen to them? I don't want you to listen to them just so that I could say you listen to me. But because I want us as a church body to be all on the same page. And so if you're in Sunday school teaching our children, you need to listen to the week that you were out. If you didn't make it here on that Sunday, you need to go back and listen to the messages that you missed. Because if you only got church once or twice, and you, know, and you come here and go, I don't know, I'm not on the same page here. We need to be on the same page with one another. It's important. But look what Paul writes about To these brothers and sisters that are there in the Thessalonian church, look at verse 3. We're going to have to move it along here. Verse 3 says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. Why did I call this... A good example, this church, a good example, because of what we read right here in these verses. Paul says, You're being a good example to your brothers and sisters in Christ in the other churches that surround you in the area. You're being a good example to them. They're hearing about what's going on here in Thessalonica, and it's a good report and you're encouraging them, and they're getting exhorted. We got exhorted going to Calvary Chapel, Clayton, and then coming back here to Winston-Salem. The brothers over there doing what we are doing here. And that's what the body of Christ is. You can go to another part of the world, and you're going to find Christians wanting and desiring to do what we want to do here. He calls them brethren in this letter. This first letter 19 times he uses that word brethren in the first letter. In the second letter, in just three chapters, he uses the word brethren nine times. Brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it's about. That's how Paul saw himself connected to them in that way because of Christ. Paul says the fruit that is being seen in you is the real evidence that your conversion is real. What What he just wrote them, this work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope, that's the real evidence to me. It's the report I got back from Timothy that he heard and saw in you that tells me for sure that what happened there when we were there was real. You turn from your idols to serve the living and true God. You have the work of faith, this labor of love, this patience of hope. It's being worked out in your life. It's what I desire for Calvary Chapel Fellowship, that, that, that we would be able to say the same thing of this church. You see, this work of faith, if you were to flip it around and you would call would, were to say, This faith that works. You say, but I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But did you know that you're called to work? You're called to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. But works will follow. That's what Paul was hearing about. They had this faith that was working. It was doing something. They were being an example We know that Paul pretty much annihilated the whole thought that a person could be saved by works in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, didn't he? For by grace are you saved through faith. Not that of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone would be able to boast. When it says, for by grace you are saved through faith, the word through is the channel. Faith is not what saves you. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that saved you from your sin. Faith is the vehicle, I could say, or the channel by which God chose to use to bring you into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God. He gives you even that measure of faith to believe. And you entered into a relationship with him. But Ephesians 2.10 says this. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It's the evidence that the church at Thessalonica, this was a real conversion. These are real believers. Paul saw their work of faith as being the evidence. In Titus 3:5, Paul also wrote this: not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's being born again. He took your dead spirit and revived it and made it alive by his Holy Spirit. John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, concerning The works, we could say, that should come forth out of real faith. He says, now by this we know that we know him. How do you know you're a Christian? This is how you know. That you know him. If you keep his commandments. That's what John says. He who says that I know him. If you say you're a Christian, you say you know him. And you do not keep his commandments. John says you're a liar and and the truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word, and that's the commandments, the whole word of God. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as Jesus walked. It's one of the evidences that we're really a believer. It's what Paul was rejoicing and thanking God for, their work of faith. One of the greatest evidences that we are a believer, even apart from our obedience and our works that we could do. Why? Because people can mimic works, can't they? Lots of churches out there that people might not even be born again, might not really have a personal relationship, but I'll tell you, they can put on a picture of works that would probably rival you and I. Is that the evidence that they're a true believer? Not necessarily. What can you not fake? What can you not fake? You cannot fake the love of God. Paul also spoke about this love, this supernatural love being poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit in Romans 5.5. 5. That supernatural love came and dwelled inside of you the day you were born again. It's a love that this world doesn't know. It's unconditional, sacrificial love. It's what Paul saw in the church at Thessalonica, a labor of love, or if we flipped it around, a love that will labor. You see, true agape love will lay down its life for one another. It will give of itself. It will do whatever it takes to minister to one another, not just to God, but to each other. This is how we perceive the love of God, that he laid down his life for you and you ought also to lay down your life for one another first john we have that supernatural love in us it's the same love that indwelt the believers there at Thessalonica it's in you too 2000 years later i'm going to have to move ahead Lastly, Paul was thanking God for the patience of hope that he heard that was in them. The hope that is patient. The patient waiting for our Lord. The patiently waiting for his return. What does that do to you in your walk with Jesus Christ? When you're going through hardships and trials and difficulties... Persecution, if it comes your way. And it was coming their way. They had to have endurance, didn't they? They had to be patient and patiently endure, knowing that the Lord was coming back. It should be the hope that we go forward with each and every day. This is all going to come to an end. It's just momentary, it's just for a little season. The trials and difficulties of life. God will help me to redeem the time. Make good use of the time. Help me to to take seriously the days that we're living in. Even when things are tough. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells inside of us which is the guarantee to you and I that he's gonna raise your body up someday to be with him. That should give us a strong confidence, a strong hope. That's what hope is by definition. Confident expectation. With confidence, I know what's gonna happen. With expectation, I'm waiting for that day to happen. If you don't have hope and you don't have confident expectation of Christ's return and your new body that you're going to have someday and your eternity with Christ, then I would say you probably are a bummed out Christian. You're probably living this life going, I don't know if I can take it anymore. We need to well up with hope, confident expectation that this is all going to come to an end. As we go through these two letters, we're going to find that Paul speaks more about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And actually, every chapter, he's going to bring out something about that. Why? Because these persecuted believers there in Thessalonica needed encouragement. We need encouragement in the days that we're living in. He told them in verse chapter 1, verse 10, he says, To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. How do you think that sounded in their ears? In chapter 2, verse 19, For what is our hope? Our joy, our crowning, our rejoicing. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? Paul is saying, I'm looking forward to that day when I'm going to stand there with you in heaven. And all of this is going to be done. All this persecution, all these trials, and it's all going to be done and I'm going to be standing. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're my rejoicing. In chapter 3, verse 13, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. In chapter 4, verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. That's what Paul says. Paul says, And then in chapter 5, the last chapter of this first letter, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the message last Sunday. That was the text. The hope of his return. It's what we should all be stirring about all the time. Watch your news. Watch Israel right now. Keep your eyes on uh, focused on the eternity. You know, living in light of eternity is a mindset. Paul says in Romans 8:24, "For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, then it says, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In other words, it is so good. It's going to be so great. It's, what we have in our future is so incredible. But we haven't seen it with our physical eyes yet. But we know it's coming. And with great perseverance, we're waiting for that day to come to pass. That's what drives you forward in this life. We could turn all three of these things around by saying the faith that works, the love that labors, the hope that patiently waits. Those are three good examples of a church that was doing that. And then look at verse 4 and we'll close with this. He closes with some words that are all part of this thankfulness and this rejoicing. Look what he says at your Bibles, verse 4. Knowing. That word knowing means Paul knew something. What did he know? He heard a great report. He saw real evidence of their faith. And, And so he was able to write this, knowing he heard it. He heard about it. Knowing, beloved brother, and he's speaking to Christians here, your election by God. Wow. He says, I know, I know this is the real deal because of what I've heard in you. You see, when you lead somebody to Christ, and all it was was an altar call, and they said a prayer, and then they went back into the world, and nothing ever changed. You're going, there's no common, there's no joy in that. You see somebody give their life to Christ and they follow through and they grow and you disciple them and you see them go moving forward in their walk, you're going, wow, this is incredible. I'm invested in this person. I'm seeing them grow. I've been a part of their discipleship. It's incredible and it just brings great joy to me. Do you see what Paul was welling up inside when he heard that report about them? Knowing, brethren, your election by God. Do you know you've been chosen by God? Think of all the people in this world that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, yet you do. If you're born again and you know him as your Lord and Savior, then you've been chosen by God. Paul, writing to Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 4, says, Just as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world. Did you know you've been chosen before the very foundation of the world? That we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Wow. God chose you. And God is going to continue that work that he started in you. Father, we do come before you this morning. We are so dependent upon you. And God, for those of us maybe that are not very dependent upon you right now, God, we repent. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, I can't do anything apart from you. I'll surely fail unless I trust in you for every Grace that I need in life, every grace that I need in ministry, I'll fail apart from you. Lord, would you pour out your Spirit afresh upon us this morning? Each of us, baptize us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Empower us with your powerful Holy Spirit that we would leave this place, Lord different, that we would sense your power, that we would go about our week, Lord, seeking to walk closer to you, seeking to spend time with you. God, forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for our compromises. Forgive us for our transgressions. Lord, we receive that forgiveness because you offer it to us every single day. And Lord, I pray that you would mend broken marriages, that you would bind together families in this church, parents with their children. Lord, that you would do a work in our midst, that as parents we would be examples to our children, Lord, we do repent. Lord, we desire, Lord, to glorify you with our lives. Empty us of ourselves that we might be full of you. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.